dangerously close. My guest today is Netta Tului Samnani. Netta is an Emmy Award-winning producer, reporter, and author. Her work has appeared in numerous publications, including The Cut, The Intercept, Vice News, The Washington Post, and so many more. Her first book, They Said They Wanted Revolution, a memoir of my parents from Little A Publications, was published in 2022. What's up, Netta? What's up? Thank you uh, for having me. Thanks for being here. I'm so happy to talk to you. Uh, actually, I was just about to say, I think I had, I had sent you a message kind of like wondering where I might go because I told you I was reading your book. Yeah. And, you know, when I first started talking to you about the coming on the podcast, I had mentioned that uh, we would maybe talk about uh, they said they wanted revolution, which is a story about your parents, the Iranian, Revo the Iranian revolution, how the revolution affected you and your family activism across generations, and obviously a lot more than that. <clears throat> but also right now, uh, you're reporting on the protests in Iran, which has become one of the biggest news stories in the world that's unfolding as we speak. So mm -hmm. I thought we could uh, jump around from the past to the present and just see where that takes us, if that's cool with you. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, okay. yeah. <laughs> well, uh, you know, the thing is, uh, we could we could go on so long just talking about your book, but also I don't, I mean, I don't want to skip over what's happening right now in the reporting you're doing right now. Yeah. Um, but to kind of, to kind of kick it off with some action is, can you share the story of escaping Iran with your mother when you were a child? Sure. Um, yeah. So it was um, in July, 1982. Um, it was kind of like any other day from what I understand. Um, my mom had gone to work in the morning and then she found to pick me up from daycare or preschool or something. And then um, we were going, like, I guess we did most days to have lunch at my grandmother's house. And my dad was going to meet us there and he never showed up. And so what my my dad who had been political and we had been sort of living underground in a safe house. He, um, when he didn't show up, my mother started freaking out. And then we come to find out that he was arrested and it was just by chance that my mother and I weren't taken, um, that we ended up going back to where we lived. Um, when my dad and the revolutionary guards came back to uh came to my grandmother's house so it really was just chance and then my dad was able to get a message to my mother when she called the house or my grandmother's house later that day to sort of be like has anyone seen him has he come and my aunt picked up the phone and told her um take the kids and drop them at your mother's house and then come here. And that was code to leave because her mother, my grandmother lived in California. Um, my mother at the time was seven months pregnant, um, almost eight months pregnant. And we ended up going underground, like truly underground for about uh, three to four weeks while they got smugglers while they found smugglers to get us out of the country. And then we went over the border and I go into this in some detail in the book, but we went over the border of Iran, um, into Turkey. Um, just, it's a smuggling route that is sort of well-known smuggling routes. Um, and it's still being used now. Uh, so, you know, it's you know entirely relevant if you are at all interested. And I, in, I know you mentioned this in the book, but um, I'm not sure if, if we brought it up. But you were like basically a baby or a toddler. So yeah, I was. In, in addition yeah. to your mother being like seven, eight months pregnant, so this is like the most, the, probably the most difficult way to travel. <laughs> uh, I know under under the best was, circumstances. Yeah, exactly. There were six of us, I think, um, I think it was six, um, who left together. Uh, and one of us was me, who was not even three years old yet. And then another one was my cousin, who was five months old. And 
uh, and then my mother was very, very pregnant. And then, you know, everybody else was, you know, and then the other thing is, so we went over the mountains and it was horseback and by foot and by car a bit until we got into, into Turkey. And then that was a whole ordeal to get, um, my mother and I had probably the easiest time of getting out of the country. Um, though it was still hard because we had uh, American citizenship, but the, um, the rest of the family ended up sort of being forced to, um, go longer routes to get back to the States. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I now have a, he, he'll be two in the spring, in March. And, uh, I truly don't know how they, I don't know how they did it. Like yeah. the infant was one thing, but having a toddler who, yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't know how they did it. Truly. And, and- I know that you wrote a lot of the book, uh, you know, partially it's memory, but uh, a lot of it is the stories of uh, your relatives, people who are there and people that have just told the story so many times. So that's how uh, a lot of it's formed. But do you have I know that you were very, very young, but do you have any like memories that are that are, are your own of that uh, of that trip? The journey now? Um, no, when I was younger, I mean, you know, it's so hard to know what is you know, memory can be created and recreated. So it's hard to know what's memory and what's not. But um, I think, you know, one of the things that I really did a lot of research on was sort of um, childhood trauma and childhood, like how children store memory, because I was always, I always had like, it was almost like I was remembering feelings or sensations. Um, There was like two very clear, like, feeling emotion memories I had. Um, One of them was feeling very much like I wanted to be with my mother and not understanding why I couldn't. And we were traveling by, by like pack horse at night. Um, And so there literally, she was very pregnant. Plus we had the horses had like our stuff on it. Um, And so, you know, most of us were traveling on the horses with the smugglers because it was dark. uh, at night and these are like pretty dangerous some of the most dangerous smuggling routes um in the world like physically dangerous um so you know obviously i maybe not obviously but it would have been dangerous for me to be with her also she probably like physically didn't have enough room for me but you know my little baby brain didn't quite understand that and so i very much i remember feeling that she was mad or like i was in trouble somehow yeah. And so that's one feeling that's sort of hard to describe, but that's something that like really stayed with me. And then the other one was I had a very clear memory of not liking my smuggler. Um, but also I had this like um it was like a security blanket. It was a blue uh, windbreaker that I would suck my thumb and hold. And I fell asleep and uh and while I was falling asleep the my hand loosened and I very clearly remember um waking up and it having like floated away oh, down yeah. the side of the mountain um or cliff top or yeah um and that was like a really big deal in my life because they they stopped and sort of looked for it and they couldn't find it and I remember being and this is you know, it's so hard to know, but I remember seeing it and being like, we have to, like, I know where it is. Let me go. I I can find it. Um, but we have to keep going. And I was terrified. Um, that's, those are, so those are like the two big memories I have of the journey. Um, and then when I was reporting the story, cause you're right. A lot of it was, uh, reporting. Like, I mean, I sat down with people and asked some questions, um, but a lot of it also was, you know, I went back to uh, var- like the city. Uh, so I was able to like check where I could people's memories and my own. Um, so when I was in Istanbul, I went to, for example, the Hilton there. And that's where we stayed one night or two nights or something. I forget, but we stayed there for uh, between 
for, I don't know, a few days. Um, cause that's where my uncle who came to get us, he, he ended up getting a space there. So it was really interesting walking through, walking up to that hotel and all of a sudden feeling like I hadn't thought about it. I hadn't been back there, you know, obviously. And, um, that was when I was like not even three. And then I was going back there when I was 38 and I just remembered, like, I remember the ceilings there. I remember the pool. Like I remembered various. Oh, wow. So it was was familiar to you? Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. But there's like this turquoise, um, tiled roof when you're walking in and it's, I don't know. It was just something that like blew my mind. Like I, I called my aunt who had been on the journey with us and I was like, this is crazy. And I like sent her a picture and I was, I just, you know, it was just moments like that where I was really interested in what kind of details would stick out to me. And then that was, you know, I mean, kind of each part along the way where I could, I tried to go back to like different places and see you know how much my memory or other people's memories um kind of lined up with with documents and archives and, and facts you know the uh the memory of losing the blue jacket and it like falling down a mountain into a ravine that like that mm-hmm. resonates with me just the way my memory worked for from my childhood when i was that age and really young all my yeah. memories from that time period it's difficult to describe, but they're kind of like uh, either like a photograph or like a really short like TikTok. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like just or uh, what's the what are they? Do you say GIF or GIF? I don't. I know. That I, say GIF, I say I, GIF. But I don't judge people that say GIF. I get confused. I prefer GIF, so I'm gonna go with that. And I was gonna yeah. say that a lot of my it just that's probably the best description of memories like from around three years old is a lot a lot like a GIF. You know, yeah. and that's and, and there might be a, an emotion attached to it, maybe not. But so that that memory really like feels like to me like I'm like yeah I know exactly what that's like you know just yeah the jacket floating away <laughs> yeah exactly and you know it was interesting I when I was doing research because I was trying to figure out like well how do you you know the trick of writing a like any book but a book where when you are either toddler through parts of it or don't aren't alive is like yeah. how do you and and these are stories that you've been told since you were a kid so like how do you tell it without like both as an adult but like preserving some of that childhood and and then like also I you know you're parsing through a lot of memories that don't really yeah they're not logical do you have to so one of the interesting things was like finding like actually being like, of course, you know, children don't have words. So they store memory in their body in different ways. And they have, um, yeah, it would make sense that there'd be sense memories rather than like verbal memories. And I guess, uh, I guess, I guess I kind of asked you to jump right into, well, I mean, it kind of makes sense. It's the part of the story that you remember or that you were there for, but I guess we. Should, I should ask you to to maybe tell why you were in Iran and why you were escaping, and it's because your parents met at Berkeley, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, you know they were students. They you know presumably, I would assume that they were enjoying living in the Bay Area, but I don't know. Maybe you know, but why? Uh, <laughs> why I mean, it was. The why did 60s, they choose? Man. I mean, yeah, that's what I'm saying. The '60s in the Bay Area sounds like a pretty nice place to be and i was curious why they would leave uh also just like the relative safety of california to go to iran during what was really a tumultuous time because there was you know there was a revolution that that was coming yeah i mean they so yeah they my parents my mom um came to the states when she was a kid she, when she was 10 so in the mid to late 50s and then my dad came when he was 18 he came to missouri and then you know so my mom had basically grown up in california she'd grown up in sort of the central coast and she had always felt sort of like an outsider um she was like quiet and bookish and my dad probably felt very out of place in missouri i've 
you know, that's sort of the part of his life I know the least about. Um, but I know that once they got, they met at Berkeley, um, it was both this like, uh, it was sort of a coming of age for both of them. You know, they found their place in a political movement, which was an, the anti-Shaw movement. They met at the end of the 60s. So it was a time of like, you know, if you've seen anything about the 60s, um, I think it was less 60s, probably in more 70s politics rather than like 60s um, sort of music and drugs and like free love. That wasn't their vibe, man. Their vibe was like politics and they they considered themselves um, eventually uh, revolutionary. Yeah. Which like was not <clears throat> different from what was happening at Berkeley. Like, I, and, and for a lot of the country, I think, you know, one of the things I tried to bring into the book was like, we forget because we're not, I don't think taught about how radical the seventies, especially the early seventies were. Um, yeah. And so they were very much of a time period and they were part of a leftist movement that was very much of the time and not just in the U S but across, you know, Europe. Um, and so they worked from 69 until 79 to basically, you know, they wanted the Shah of Iran gone, but that's not just what they were working yeah. So they were very much leftists and they were very much against this very specific monarchy, which um, was a controversial monarchy, especially as you were going through the 70s um, or a controversial monarch as as you're going through the 70s. Um, and so they went back. They had worked very hard. You know, they were behind a lot of big protests or like participated in a lot of big demonstrations against the Shah. Um, they worked, you know, around, they went abroad to work against him. And, um, and then eventually in, when it be, after he went into exile in January, 1979, um, it would, it had already been planned, but my parents went back in 79 to sort of participate in the revolution. Now it was safe for them to go back since it had been illegal to be a part of some of the um, political movements that they were a part of. So they weren't able to go back to Iran up until then. So they went back to Iran as soon as they could. And that's, you know, I was born in 79. So a true child of the revolution. There's, you know, a generation of us that were born then. Um, and, you know, very quickly, it it didn't quite pan out the way that they had thought it would, or even those early days of the revolution suggested it would. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so they kept, my mom became less political the longer they were in Iran because she was more like preoccupied with her family and trying yeah. to make a living. But for my dad, he never really left um, his political work. It's um, kind of my understanding is that the Iranian revolution was, was very, began very democratic in nature and people were trying to depose a monarch, uh, you know, like you said, but what had happened was that, and also just correct me if I'm like, obviously I, I, I'm, no, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not a scholar on this, uh, but You're not. that uh, there was like a little bit of a power vacuum and there were a lot of the right wing extremists in the country were well organized and were able to kind of assert themselves into power. And that's how you ended up with the, the regime that started 40 years ago we have today is that is that kind of a fair yeah, i mean i think that's a really good uh some you know summary basically i think you know the the overthrow was a coalition of different groups um but as you said there was a very clear leader um and you know politics is politics yeah. so uh, a lot of people made compromises um and and then you have a certain group take power, take control, and then really spend the next few years consolidating and control. Um, so, you know, my book doesn't get into that. My work sort of research and 
whatever expertise I have doesn't go too far into that. But, um, but there are plenty of really interesting books from various kind of views. And I would encourage people who are interested. Um, I think Iran is a really fascinating uh, microcosm of what, um, what it means to, to be forced for a revolution to happen and then to rebuild. Um, And I say this because Iran is also in the midst of uh, what I believe is, is the first few months of a, of a revolution now. Yeah. And I I think uh, honestly, you just said so many things that I want to, I want to, address almost everything you just said. And I'll, <laughs> I'm going to try it and go one by one. Uh, so I'll start with just like the reason why I brought up uh, what I was saying about right-wing extremists coming in. So there was a democratic revolution. However, the wrong people kind of, or, you know, in, in my opinion, and a lot of people's opinion, the wrong people got in charge. Uh, mm-hmm. And it seemed like in a lot of ways, you know, one of the biggest, the people that lost the most in this were the women of Iran, like they lost their mm-hmm. rights. And then, of course, uh, in, in your own family, because your father remained active in politics and was in opposition, uh, he ended up being arrested by this regime. And mm-hmm. and then you had to flee. Yeah. Yeah. And not, you know, I mean, I think. Yeah, I, that's all true. I mean, I think. I think the extremists are when there's a power vacuum, people tend to go toward certainty. I think, and you know, um, I'm certainly not an academic, so I'm sure people have much smarter and more um, theoretical responses to it, or deeply based in theory. But my sense is from my reporting and research that. Um, people tend towards people don't love instability which makes sense right and so um but yeah I mean I think the thing about being a woman or being somebody who identifies as a woman being anybody who's in the minority um you often find your rights uh somebody will say well let's worry about everybody else and then we'll deal with I mean, obviously you guys will eventually have the rights that you deserve, but like, let's just make sure everybody else can eat first. Yeah. Um, And I think that, you know, it's always, I think that's the hardest part is the stuff people are willing to give, to give away in, in, in the name of overall safety. And I will say Iranian women didn't give, their rights away it was they are they fought from almost from the jump to retain their rights um so yeah i mean i think iranian women kind of generally speaking have been one of the most active political groups and certainly in the country um but they uh have worked for more than a century to to both work towards um, some sort of democratic system and then work to have their rights respected and recognized. Yeah. And, uh, and in no way was I trying to diminish uh, anything that the Iranian women have uh, been doing over the past 40 years. I was just, uh, you know, all I was saying is that, you know, it was, it was sad that the people that did take power decided, you know, to, to have the kind of uh, to be oppressive towards women in the way they have been, but oh, what we could say, I, I guess. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no. I mean, I, just to be clear, I didn't take that. As oh, okay. you, yeah. <laughs> no, no. I was just. Uh, I I don't think many people know like the history, of women's political movements in Iran. So just for your listeners. So I guess we, uh, so we can move into what more people will know about now because this is. I mean, I I would if I was going to say the two biggest international news stories right now is like, is the Russian war uh, and the Iranian uh, protest slash maybe revolution. That's really like what my question is because yeah, what we were talking about, essentially the same regime that we've been talking about this whole time has still been in power for the past 40 years, 
But in September 2022, uh, Masa Amini was abducted by the morality police and mm-hmm. died in their custody a few days later, mm-hmm. which sparked uh, a massive women-led protests across the entire country of Iran in every city. And it continues to gain momentum and power. And uh, most news sources are still reporting on this as it's it's protests. Those are the, that's like the kind of the language they're using. But mm-hmm. you, you just mentioned this a little while earlier. It's something I did want to ask you. Do you think that this could be categorized as a new revolution? Is that a, f- yeah. a fair, fair way to say it? I think so. Um, and I think, I think a lot of, you know, a few people have asked me why I am be, why I'm so, I choose that language. And I think this isn't a pro- protest to me means that even if you want something changed, you're willing to work within the system yeah. to change it. Um, and these are not that these are people saying we, and not just the group of people who are out on the streets, like physically protesting, but everybody that I've spoken to inside of Iran, um, with like the exception of people that I personally haven't spoken to, but I know that they're like pro-regime people, but they're very small and seem to be very far and few between, at least this is my personal, um, you know, experience. Um, not one person is saying, let's keep working within the systems that are there. In fact, what they're saying is that the systems are rotten, which yeah. is, you know, what a revolution, what revolutionaries, uh, what it means to be in revolution, to be in revolt is to say that the system isn't working instead of reforming it. What we want to do is rebuild it. Start from the beginning, for example. Um, And I think that that's why I, you know, I'm somebody who, you know, considers the words I'm using pretty carefully. And I think out of respect for the people who are, as you say, putting themselves at risk of being abducted since arrests don't really work. If you don't have a rule of law, you can't say that somebody's being arrested. Yeah. Um, because then their release or their execution or their sentencing is sort of up to whomever is in the room at that time. It's up to the whim of whoever is in power. So then it's not a rule of law, as it were, in, in any real sense. This is yeah um but it's a, it's so, a, t- a tyrant <laughs> yeah, t- tyrant, right. tyranny yeah right so if you you can't say somebody was arrested if somebody is essentially abducted right, right. <laughs> and then like put in prison for months or whatever and then so if you don't have a if you don't have a rule of law that is something that's easily sort of recognizable and you don't have people who are saying we want to reform the system. And every time somebody leaves the house, whether or not you are, you know, demonstrating, or if you're going to, you know, try to catch a bus somewhere, every time you leave your house, you're at risk. That means to me that people are in, in some sort of, yeah, revolts. It's, it's a conflict anyway. And the people who are, the people who are fighting, the people who are putting their lives at risk are the people that I'm concerned about centering in this story. Yeah. And so if what they're telling me is we consider this a revolution, then it's it's up to me to use the words that make sense. You know, I mean, I think sometimes we play fast and loose with how we label things. Um, mm-hmm. I think about this with the insurrection a lot. Yeah. People call that, you know, depending on where you are, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like they call it a, a riot or um, a protest, a far right protest. But I'm very specific at calling it an insurrection because that's what it was. Um, and I think it's, you know, the same way. I just think we have to be very specific about the words that we choose. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, uh, and I, you know, not to go just too far in this direction, but I mean, it's just it's facts and it can't be ignored. And that's that the Iranian regime is executing prisoners. And these are people who have been arrested for protesting. Mm-hmm. And so for people to continue to go out and protest 
when this, uh, you know, this power structure has shown that they will essentially murder people because this is not like these aren't people that were on death row because they were murderers. They're being executed for, you know, freedom of expression, you know, free speech, yeah. essentially. It can't be really that much more clear cut that it is a revolution and the people are, you know, they're not just going out in places where it's, they're not just on college campuses. They're going to the, some of the like most uh, conservative religious centers in the country. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's, I mean, I also think a couple of things that just want to reinforce of what you said, it's a women led protest, but it's also a, protest revolution it's it's also a revolution that's based very firmly in rights issues that are about women's rights and minority rights which is something that we haven't really seen so um i think that's like like i would just want to sort of stress the uniqueness and then the the people who are on the ground um they are fighting with as you say, protests, but also through art, graffiti, music, theater, like when we're talking about the full scope of freedom of expression, like that's what it is. It's freedom of speech, freedom of assembly. These are the the tools that they are actually using to fight a, a ruthless totalitarian regime. And I think, and brutal. Um, and so, you know, and they're young. I think that's yeah. the other thing is that these these are often kids like in their teens and early early twenties. So um, you know, I I don't think I think like the full texture of it is really is both interesting and um, unique in that sense, but also uh, that's what makes it so hard for for so many of us to to be witnessing. And I I don't want to start throwing out any statistics that I don't know I don't know for certain, but uh, this is just something that I read and it's, it could be different by now, but I believe there's something I mean you know, a lot of people have been killed, like more, not just in the executions, but people are getting killed in the protests by the police and I saw somewhere it was something really really dramatic that something like 25% of the people killed were children. Is that, is that Um, sound like a correct number or I, I could, I I mean, I, you know, it both wouldn't surprise me. And also I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I do know. um, And I know it's, it's difficult for a lot of this information to get out of Iran right now. So, I mean, we're working with what we're working with. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, um, I would, for people who are interested, I think amnesty, is keeping track of the numbers and Iranian human rights center, I believe. Um, but like, I think what you're saying is actually another really like, this is something that actually keeps me up at night, That there just isn't enough trusted news. Like nobody really is on the ground there. There's so many journalists right now that are in prison, mostly yeah. women journalists, but so many journalists are in prison in Iran of, you know, many more are working like I am trying from the outside to get in to to figure out what's happening, which means that there are so many stories that we don't know. We don't know the full. We can't even begin to understand the full extent of this moment. I know that you had said earlier that uh, you didn't make it a focus of your book to do a ton of research into the methods and practices that the regime used to solidify power in the 1980s uh, mm-hmm. and, and to like suppress political opposition but but you did do some you know you did do some research and you lived through it and your family lived through it so i know mm-hmm. that uh, obviously you have a much much more a clearer and personal experience with what that was yeah uh, but my, i guess my question really is though how different would you say if at all uh the methods and practices that the modern regime is using to suppress uh protesters are like have they changed their tactics are they more sophisticated or I mean, I think Iran, the regime, not um, the people of the Islamic regime, um, is incredibly sophisticated in terms of surveillance. It's a full-on surveillance state. And um, 
And that's something that cannot, you know, Iran, you know, can hack. We have tons of stories over the past however many years, 10 years, you know, doing whatever. But they also spent a lot of time in honing their skills and their technology by watching the, their own people and uh, surveilling their own people. And the best, I will say, the most the most difficult part of living in a place where you don't know if you're always being watched is that you think that you're always being watched. So yeah. you sort of uh, figure, change your behavior accordingly. Um, so that's, you know, so in the sense of the technology, I think, you know, Iran is relatively sophisticated when it comes to surveillance. But I, that being said, I think, you know, the playbook, seems to me to be the same they are still you know whether they're stalking people online or in person they're still stalking people um they're still abducting people they're still disappearing people they still practice um allegedly they practice torture on prisoners that certainly has been the case with people um in my family and people that i know um there isn't due process in the way there is you know in America or in other countries. So I think, you know, uh, that's certainly true. Um, I think what is the brutality feels of what's happening now, how they're clamping down now, it's always been an incredibly brutal regime, but like the brutality seems to me to be on par with what we saw in the 1980s. And that's just, you know, the ferocity of how they're like, you know, clamping down. I don't want to uh, like invoke the third Reich as a, as a a reference is, you know, right now everyone's calling everyone Nazis and it's, it's becoming a little bit meaningless, but I think in, in this instance, what's what I'm thinking about right now, it actually is a good, a good uh, metaphor or not, or I mean, analogy is uh, the way. So obviously the, the Nazis did not have the kind of uh, surveillance, the sophisticated surveillance that Iran has now, but they had the, you know, the thing with like getting neighbors to snitch on neighbors and having the Nazi youth to try and get, you know, kids to snitch on their teachers or their parents. And uh, I guess what I'm thinking is in a slightly different way is the sophisticated ability of the propaganda arm of the regime to get various factions within Iran who might mm-hmm. all benefit from a regime change. But by mm-hmm. keeping by keeping them opposed to each other, does that seem to be a problem? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Um, I, you know, that's that's a. I don't think I'm certainly not. I, I don't know like a ton about the. I'm I'm not an expert on Germany and world <laughs> and the lead up to World War II. I, but I shouldn't, I shouldn't I, have even brought it up. It just it popped into my head, and then I couldn't help it. It came out. No, out. no. I mean, I do. <laughs> I don't get the sense. I don't know. I mean, the truth of the matter is, I don't know. But what do I think that the regime is exploiting divisions within the dais? Well, I don't. Okay, I'm going to actually talk. I'm not going to say anything because it's all my personal opinion. And but that's, I don't know. That's totally, and I think totally. Like I, I, I want to know your opinion, though. So feel free to just no, share your I personal opi- well, so- opinion. Well, so one of the reasons why I, I, I'm hesitating on that, or maybe it's worth even explaining why I am, is I think um, there is, because we don't have a lot of information coming out of Iran, people are ex- taking shreds. Of, it feels like it's conspiracy theories are just mushrooming. And yeah. I, I actually think that that's becomes really dangerous in in a moment like this um because then you're giving credence to to other people other people's agendas are suddenly suddenly like voiced upon you and all of a sudden you're like well wow that sounds right and i don't even know if i'm making sense but what i'm trying to say is that it's actually become really disheartening to see the level of um, finger pointing and 
conspiracy mongering that's happened um, since the start of the uprising. And I really, I, I don't know who is behind it and I don't pretend to know who is behind it, but I can say that it's less about, from what I understand, neighbors snitching on neighbors to the government, for example, um, though I, I don't, that I don't know and I can't pretend to know, but um, I would, I don't think I haven't heard of that. But I do think what's interesting in terms of like divisions are outside of the country, um, there seems to be a real movement to divide the diaspora in ways that I think are, um, doesn't serve the overall mission of, yeah. um, of supporting the people who are struggling inside the country. I think it's distracting from what's actually happening. And I don't think, I think what's really frustrating to watch is well-meaning people pushing conspiracy theories. And and I'm not sure who it serves. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know what I'll do? I, I will, I will, I'll rephrase that question. And maybe like a little bit more of a, a more succinct okay. way that's not that doesn't lend itself so much to just saying are you know are there secret police doing you know <laughs> of, course, of course how would you even know uh but yeah but you did just say uh like you were talking about uh the diaspora and you know the, <laughs> and that makes me uh wonder like you have you've been back to iran since you were a child right you've you've been there as a as an adult Yes, I was there in 2003, 2004. So not recently, but. Oh, I mean, I just wanted to ask just uh, as a woman uh, just mm -hmm. going to Iran, can you kind of say what it's, what it just, what is it like to be a woman in Iran just in a day to day? Like, what's that feel yeah. like? I mean, I think, you know, it was in 2003, 2004 was such an interesting time in Iran, too. It was like, as the country was starting to open up a little bit, the idea was that, you know, things were getting a little bit looser. Um, there was this, all of a sudden people were, you know, I remember before I got there, people were telling me, oh, they're like, you know, Iran has the best parties, which isn't a lot. Um, and, um, you know, girls are wearing makeup outside and everybody has these really beautiful, like, hijabs and manteau and like, you know, you'll anyway it was just I remember being told that like it feels like it's opening it felt like something was changing or starting to change mm -hmm. um and then and you know in some ways that did feel true um but in many other ways I found it really difficult um I you know I was in my early 20s at that point and um I've told this story before, but, um, you know, I would, uh, I was just, I just always felt very conscious of where I was in any given moment, or I would get really frustrated by the limitations on my movement. I got really annoyed when I would go for a run and I had to be covered. Um, I would get really really angry and hurt and mad when I would be commuting to work and I would have to sit in the back of the bus um as a woman like the the women's section was at the back of the bus um I found it very difficult I think well that's so, that's crazy that's like that's like uh the segregate like the United States segregation like in the civil rights was oh yeah and being an American, I found it very difficult because it wasn't, um, you couldn't move, like if it was too crowded and nobody was in the front of the bus, you couldn't move to the front of the bus. You actually, there was a steel rod that was separating the women's section. And I don't know if that's still how they do it, but at the time it was a steel rod separating the women's section from the men's section. And so you would have to go, you'd pay in the front of the bus and then you'd walk to the back of the bus. And you didn't, it felt like it never mattered what time of day it was. You were always squished together. And I found it humiliating. And yeah. I found it really difficult to have grown up in the U.S. with some 
knowledge of what the civil rights movement was and really like why, what it meant to separate people. Um, and I mean, forget about separate, but equal. They're just, that wasn't my feeling. That wasn't my experience of both sides of the bus. Um, I mean, there, and, is, there, there is no more clear cut way to say, we believe men are superior to women. Women have to be on the shittier part of the bus. Like, and, <laughs> and if they're overcrowded, they can't move into the open part of the bus because this is enforced by law. I, I assume is that right. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, and then there was, there was just, there was no, I think the other thing that was so frustrating and was that there, it wasn't consistent, you know, like, so you can take these sort of taxis, these private taxis up and down um, in central Tehran and like some of the big thoroughfares, you like flag down a taxi and you jump in and then the men and the women would be squished together and you'd be like a man could be like on top of you essentially. Yeah. And I just, that sort of inconsistency also was, you know, it, it just made you sort of like the paranoia of living there and being a woman. Um, though I'm sure being a man too had its, you know, being a man in Iran at that point also had its, um, insanity inducing moments i mean there was just the inconsistency of the state and how it enforced certain laws would change literally and would just come in waves so you could be wearing like what happened with um nasa gina amini you could be wearing your hijab one way and it would be fine and then somebody just another time didn't like the look of or um, you just don't have a sense of when, you know, it's going to come crashing down on you. So um, by the time I, so the, I left in the spring after there was um, a conservative wave was sort of brought, elected in power. And I was able to see you kind of very quickly. Things felt like they were changing, like closing down a bit. Um, but I left before it got more rigid um and then you know my understanding was that there was a crackdown right after i left um and you know and that was just part of the course people just adjusted their behavior and i think what was what has been interesting what is interesting is seeing the toll the sort of um psychic toll that it's taken on people um generations of this or generations decades of this but yeah generations of this too and so i i actually think that's one of the things that we're seeing is this generation this gen z generation doesn't have the experience of um the living through one uh, revolution they don't have they perhaps don't remember or have only heard in story the iran iraq war and what that was like and so i think what they have lived through is a different and very real trauma of living under this particular regime and it's both its inconsistency and its brutality. Um, and so I think it's a, it's a different level of anger and truly of a feeling of hopelessness that I think people are pushing against. Uh, speaking to that, it, do you mind if I ask you to speculate just a little bit on some, on some thoughts that I'm having? Oh yeah. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Well, there's no really there's there's no way other to there's no other way to do it because you can't there's no way to for us in America to have the answer or you know to know what's mm -hmm. truly true. But but I believe I mean you could probably make some great speculation. So I'm just going to go ahead and ask. <laughs> okay. Uh, and it, what it is too is just it, the the regime seems to be in many ways acting like a like a cornered animal, uh, lashing out. Uh, you know, with extreme cruelty toward the Iranian people. And that could be because there is a good probability that they will be overthrown. You know, that could be why this they're acting this, they're cracking down this hard being, you know, mm -hmm. but do you know what kind of future the protesters like have envisioned and what a regime change might look like? And also how they might want to try to keep another right wing extremist group from trying to take advantage 
of a power vacuum if that were to occur again? Um, these are all excellent questions <laughs> that I, I will I, truly. Sorry, uh, I feel like I feel like I really threw a lot at you all at once, and I, I didn't mean to. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I I think I'm just thinking through. So it's important to acknowledge that this uprising revolution, however you want to say it, seems to be um, led horizontally. That is, there's no one leader. There's no um, one person at the top of the pyramid, whatever. Um, But it does seem to me that they are united by certain principles, which isn't, is sort of based in sort of progressive feminism, but also a progressive, there seems to be a real push um, for, you know, gender equality and parity, but also minority rights in a way that like in a country like Iran hasn't really been acknowledged before. And so if you're starting from those principles, then my hope is that those are the principles that are going to be followed through on. Um, I think trumping those is obviously getting rid of the regime. I don't know, and somebody else who might have who who studies the Middle East more in terms of like uh, extremist groups, like would have a better sense of who already is in Iran. Um, but you know, Iran, like Israel, is sort of an anomaly in the Middle East. I mean, it's not an Arab country, which makes it um quite not quite different but makes the the threats a little bit different mm-hmm. um and it's a shiite country it's a shiite minority majority country so in that sense i you know I, I acknowledge that i that there isn't a clear leader that there could potentially be a power vacuum but i also again go back to the fact that we have no real idea of how people are organizing we have a sense of it. We're guessing at parts of it, but, um, you know, my reporting leads me to believe that there are like small, it's, it's a decentralized groups around the country, um, that seem to be working in, you know, organizing somehow. Um, but yeah, so that's, and but going back to what you were saying about the regime acting like a cornered animal, the analogy that I've been using just to like play with each other's analogies a little bit is um, I have been talking about it as um, that moment when somebody is in an abusive relationship when they decide to leave. Because the most dangerous, as you know, I think a lot of us know at this point, the most dangerous time in an abusive relationship is when you're leaving which is why that's like the time when people um their lives are most at risk and so i think that it is you know it's incredibly dangerous right now um because the regime's entire reason for being is being you know challenged um and the the sort of coalitions that I'm seeing being built within the country, what I, that I'm hearing about being built within the country, don't seem to be don't seem to have that right wing at this point that I've heard that I've seen um, that sort of um, hard right hard line is what I'm trying to say, not hard right hard line. Um, uh, belief systems, which I think is both a good thing. And then, you know, it, it can be a difficulty for building coalition building um, systems, you know, because it's much harder <laughs> to build systems across groups. Um, but I also think that if, you know, one of the, the things that I have tried to become better at over the last few years 
um, especially covering all the stories that I've covered, um, is not leaning into the cynicism that comes with being 43 years old and covering politics for so long and covering news for for a long period of time. Yeah, I think it's so easy to roll your eyes and assume that the worst will happen. Um, and it's much more difficult to look at things as they are and acknowledge that you don't know what's coming um, and really lean in on what are like the complexity of outcomes that could happen um, that it's- aren't so black and white. It's actually it's it's so interesting that you would say that you would bring up cynicism because the I was actually going to go in the exact opposite direction. And mm-hmm. I've I think I've been maybe said, you know, people have told me a few times in my life that I'm a little bit foolishly optimistic in some ways. But I don't think that's the case with what we're talking mm-hmm. about right now. And that what I what I was going to say is that I think that there are plenty of reasons to be hopeful. And I'm sure that there are. uh just like thinking more for maybe like for us, you know, where we're at, you know, because we're, we're not over there. We can't be on the ground with the people. But um, I'm sure there are many ways people outside of Iran can show support. And, you know, let's just say to any listeners that aren't uh, tech billionaires that could prov- provide, you know, Starlink satellite support or whatever, you know, uh, what is something helpful and meaningful that an average person can do? I think. It is incredibly helpful to do something as basic as really try to educate yourself. I mean, it depends, right? Like we have the spectrum of things. Um, I think educating yourselves, not letting, I think one of the things that's so Mm. refreshing, Doug, to hear you say that this is one of the biggest stories in the world right now, international stories in the world, because I felt disheartened by wondering whether people are paying attention to the story at all um, and knowing how these kids are putting their lives in jeopardy. Um, so I think educating yourself about both what's happening and also like, you know, Iran was called the one of the axis of evil for so long. And it was, we've as a country and as a society spent a lot of time trying to simplify a very complicated and beautiful and rich ancient, you know, country that's like also is deeply diverse and has its own set of, you know, yeah, complexities. So to get to know Iran at all, I think, or be curious about it at all is helpful. But I also think, you know, it's really hard to know people want to donate money or something. I think there's some groups that are doing really interesting work with, um, helping Iranians who are inside the country um, with mental health resources, because it's a pretty bleak time inside the country. Um, um, I'm sure if people know anything, they know that the, you know, currency is, is almost worthless now. And so I think that that, if, if you can, there's some, um, there's some organizations that are doing that work, which I think is really helpful. Um, and they are asking for donations. There are some smaller groups um, that are helping fund VPNs on a smaller level. Um, and then I would, you know, write your representatives, write your congressmen and your senators, have them, you know, I think the more pressure can be put on the regime to stop the executions, to let prisoners go free, to allow people to do journalism in the country. Yeah. Those are things that I think um, international pressure can actually be really good on. Um, and I am somebody who believes that we should have people inside of Iran that can be, you know, special raconteurs from the UN or um I think working in a vacuum, having Iran operate with, you know, carte blanche in vacuum is really scary for me, but I'm a journalist and I always think more information is, is better than less. So, you know, I think really clear um, steps is, you know, educating yourself, 
finding groups like mental health care groups that are working within the trying to work within the country through workshops or um, providing some sort of online resources, people who are supporting people in Iran by keeping VPNs or other um, uh, tech services um, uh, open, um, smaller groups, I would, you know, tech billionaires aside um and (laughs) you know i i can't i can't let a single episode go by without taking a jab at lord elon i'm sorry oh no no (laughs) i I, you know i mean the fact uh, that even that he was able to do try to do something good and ended up you know doing a dumb thing is just it's on it's really on brand for him really (laughs) Truly. Um, and then, and then, yeah, we, you know, we have a representative Republic. So call on your lawmakers. Um, and then, you know, on a smaller level, if you know any Iranians, maybe just reach out to them. It's a hard time for us. (laughs) We're all struggling Uh, a bit. (laughs) I, I will then I will absolutely do that. That's, that's one thing I feel like that's, I think that's what I was trying to get at is uh, things, you know, because I believe that hope is one of the most powerful forces that exists. And that's why, I, you know, I didn't want to end this on a note where we're like, uh, the you know, the brutality, you know, are these, you know, it's I, I it's the same same thing I feel about climate change mm-hmm. is that people become very uh, like what I call climate doomers. I didn't make that up. I heard it somewhere and then I just adopted it and you know and it's like people that are like it's too late can't do anything about it drive your hummer dump your oil into a lake full of ducks you know like and it's just (laughs) and i'm like no that's not the you know be a you know try to find how you can make a positive change even if it's small it's there's you know if there's enough of us and there's enough hope things can change and i think that you can apply that to more than one thing I often apply it to climate change, animal conservation. These are things I work in a lot, but Mm -hmm. uh, with uh, the Iranian people, the protesters, you know, having, keeping hope alive, making sure that their stories are being heard, you know, all all around. And who knows, it could be the kind of thing where, you know, some tech billionaire decides they want to score some points and be popular again and goes and does the right thing for once (laughs) or, Totally. Yeah. Or, you know, I mean, I was going to make a, a, a dumb joke. I was going to say, or maybe uh, Jake Gyllenhaal makes another Prince of Persia, but this one they, they put Maggie Gyllenhaal and call it the Princess of Persia. <laughs> maybe. There's some Iranian actors. <laughs> I know. I was, I, I brought, I brought that up because I, um, that's kind of considered one of the worst whitewashing films oh of, my God. Yeah. of all time. I mean, since I guess Lawrence of Arabia was pretty, but, but anyway, here's the thing. Uh, what I wanted to uh, say also just because I am this hopeful and I do believe this is going to, uh, you know, the things, the tide is going to go the right way. And I wanted to say that um, maybe a little bit down the road when mm-hmm. the protesters have succeeded and there is a regime change and women have regained their rights and they can wear whatever they want, and they can get educated however they want, and they can sit on any seat on the bus they want. Uh, maybe then we can celebrate by you could come back on the podcast, and we can do a movie review of Jake Gyllenhaal's uh, Prince of Persia and make fun of it, and that could That's... be a a, celebra- a celebration episode. Oh my god, I love that! Can we do that in three hundred? Which oh, <laughs> I, yeah, I've, I forgot about three hundred. Okay. <laughs> That's a, a two part double a double feature. All right, guys. You, you heard, I love it. I you, love heard it. it. you heard it here first. Uh once uh when the people of Iran have succeeded and the protests have succeeded, uh and hope has prevailed, we will be seriously talking some shit over Prince of Persia and <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So come uh, on, everybody. Let's get this revolution yeah. moving. <laughs> Look, if if you weren't motivated before, you should be you should be motivated now. I mean, absolutely. Uh Neda, I have to ask you one last question. It's uh probably the most important question of the day. That's <laughs> it's hard to say that I ask important questions. But uh this is uh 
where can people uh, find your work? Like, where can they read uh, what you write? Where can they uh, find your book? Uh, just everything. Oh. oh my goodness! Well, you can follow me around the internet on uh, on Twitter and Instagram, Netta underscore Samani on both. Um, mm, I haven't updated my website, but in theory, uh, you can find almost everything that I've written there. Um, and then the book is available anywhere. Ask your local bookstore if they'll order it if they're not carrying it or go on bookshop bookshop.org or, you know, Amazon. Um, it's great too. I mean, you know, whatever. And then otherwise, yeah, drop me a note, say hi and friendly. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Oh, Doug, thank you so much. I've, I talked so much. And that's, <laughs> but I learned so much and that was the goal. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Good. <laughs>